You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because if your store-bought reality is disappointing, homemade is fine. I'm Foz Meadows. I'm Marshall Ryan Moresca. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Rowena Miller. And this is episode 78, Reimagining Relationships. Well, welcome back, listeners, to another episode, and we are extremely excited this week to welcome Foz Meadows onto the show. Hi, Foz. Hello. Thank you for having me. Welcome, welcome. Um, Would you mind giving us the brief intro to you and a little bit about your work? Okay. uh, Hi, I'm Foz Meadows. Uh, I am predominantly known for yelling on the internet for many years, um, (laughs) which somehow I got a Hugo Award for yelling on the internet, but... (laughs) Uh, I also write fiction. I have a queer romantic fantasy coming out from Tor in July this year called A Strange and Stubborn Endurance. Uh, I've also written uh, a portal fantasy duology called The Manifold Worlds, uh, the first book of which, An Accident of Stars, is getting re-released in June, which is very exciting. Um, Yes. (laughs) Hooray! And and I, I got to read an early Strange and Stubborn Endurance, and it is just a delight, listeners. We are adding to your TBRs yet again. Get that one on there. Pre-order it if you have not already, because it was just, it, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it a lot this episode because it feeds into quite a bit of what we're going to be talking about, but just a really delightful second world. And if you're into geeky world building things, you'll be sitting there reading it going, oh, I see what you're doing there. Oh, that's so cool all the time because the world building is just really delightful. Thank you. <laughs> quite welcome. <laughs> So way back in season one, we had K.A. Dor on and we had a delightful chat about queering your world building and what it means to build a queer norm world. And we thought we should revisit that topic with a little bit more of a like 201, 301 level scope on, on the whole question. So, I mean, in many ways, this is beyond the question of just having a singular choice, right? Like, do I include non-heteronormative stuff in my world or not is like, it, I mean, that is, that's the most basic choice that you can make. And there are so many choices beyond that, right? Yes. <laughs> Obviously. you're being cynical, thinking like, <laughs> unless you're Disney and the MCU, in which case. No, that's not a choice that you like, can, well, apparently maybe it is a choice. Have, it is a choice that you're making, but. They're just Everyone is very people. limited. It's a very that, limited choice. That article that was written, everyone is beautiful and no one fucks, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Tragic. <laughs> well, I mean, they do in fan fiction, but not not canonically. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how much more creative fan fiction can be in those ways. You can have a little queer rep as a treat, but only if we can easily edit it out for the um, international markets that require that. Yeah, but I mean, let's be real. The, it's using, oh, it's the international markets is just a blatant excuse. They don't want to do it anyway. Totally it's just... <laughs> we would do it, but there's but... there's somebody over there who doesn't want us to. <laughs> so, like, our hands are tied. It's terrible. Yeah. <gasps> like, because mm-hmm. we totally... Mm-hmm want to do it we do but yeah we just can't because china they, yeah. they don't want us to lies lies but the rest of us can make more indifferent choices a wide variety of choices and and it is sort of funny it's not like it's just a light switch where it's like queer on queer off right there's there's so many things from like is this the clapper yes it's but it's a rainbow light <laughs> Oh man, now I want one of those. I thought you were doing like a Mr. Miyagi reference. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, that thought sure was going somewhere and then it got distracted by. Because now I'm picturing like a rainbow clapper, but like different patterns get you. Like I could do one for my little bi light. You could do one for different, you know, the different flag lights. Someone invent that. I'll buy it. I'll, I'll give you my money. <laughs> I think the point I was driving towards is that. When it comes to queer rep in fiction and in fantasy and sci-fi particularly, there are so many things that that can mean. It's not just necessarily like a society that is either not okay with any of it and or completely okay with all of it. There is a wide variety of like tolerance and acceptance and conceptual availability even that I think we can play with. 
I mean, even just the question of, you know, norms, what, what is a norm in the world can be this, this wide variety of things, like beyond even just acceptance or like tolerance. That's, that's a, I hate that word. Um, but, uh, you know, of, of different choices, like what, what's, what's a norm? What's not a norm? How do you play with these things can be, can be all kinds of fun in second world. There's also, there's a big difference between tolerance and acceptance and normalization. Like you can show a culture where like, yes, it's, it's absolutely accepted, if, but that's completely different from this is what is the societal norm within this culture and, and sense of relationships and shall we say marriages can look completely different in what's expected within within the sense of a culture. So I always think when you're talking about like queer norm or a norm, it's not just about how it's presented in the story. It's about the cultural narrative justification for why it's presented in the story. And which isn't to say you can't just have a shallowly fun, it's queer because I say it is. Um, you know, that can be that's that can be great fun as well. But I'm always really drawn to that sort of the why and the what if of what religious or cultural or historical or organic to the setting thing explains how this particular view of queerness or sexuality or relationships has uh, influenced this culture. And that to me is, is really compelling because uh, I think it, it, it ties into when you're looking at the real world and you say, why does a given society believe this? Why does a given group believe that? And we have those justifications for it. And they're often really complex and messy. There's never or very seldom just one reason. And very seldom does that one reason look the same when everybody within the group is explaining it, shall we say. So if you look at Christianity to take the most obvious sort of cultural example, and you go up and you say to somebody, okay, is Christianity compatible with being queer? Is it not compatible with being queer? You will get a huge array of answers as to how that is. So, and people saying, yes, it is, and no, it isn't, and here's why, or here's why it kind of is, but and it, because it's all coming from different interpretations of the same source material. But then you look at something else. I think it's, truth is often stranger than fiction, I think, in these regards, because if you create, if you try and create a fictional setting that has as many takes, shall we say, on something like queerness as the modern world does, it feels inorganic. And I think that the part of the reason for that is you're comparing a modern society where everybody globally is connected through the internet and connected through discourse and connected through knowledge of history to one where, particularly if you're writing, say, like a, an epic fantasy setting, uh, everything is much more localized and therefore more homogenous. So it would feel less innate to that sort of setting to say, yes, there are 16 different viewpoints on this particular thing outside of some sort of specific religious or academic debate context, like in the general populace. But then, you know, depends on the, on the type of world that you're building and the level of complexity and the level of interconnectedness. I think it's very interesting that often when, you know, when you do have a queer world or even just a world in which there, there is non-het relationships. There's sometimes this pushback of like, we have to, why? Why is that something that exists in the world? And I feel like it's kind of funny that if you're doing really good world building, like you should have the why for your heteronormative world too. Like, well, why that? Why does it exist that way? Like, if we're going to ask the justifications, like, well, what's the background? Why is it that that's the norm for the world? Or this is the only thing that's accepted? Like, I think often we don't think that through because it's a presumption, not an active choice that many people make. When you start making active choices, then you like, oh, right, I actually should like explain or justify or understand the world. So I think this ties into something which I've talked about years and years ago, but I think still applies. And it's a problem that I think cropped up and still does crop up in a lot of, let's say, secondary world fantasy that tends to be based on a vague European medieval period thing. As And we know that there's a lot of fantasy that falls into that category. As with any sort of subgenre, some of it is really good, some of it is okay, some of it is bad. Um, but there is this phenomenon that I think particularly applies to this subgenre of, of what I have called sexism without sexists. And it's where exactly the question that you're posing, which is why is heterosexual marriage the way it is? 
in this setting, why, you know, why agenda norms set up the way they are. It's where somebody hasn't really bothered to interrogate that in their own setting. And they've just tried to do a really shoddy kind of copy and paste from what they think the medieval period was like without actually knowing anything about the middle medieval period. It's just like a little bit of Tolkien and a little bit of that really terrible Robin Hobb, not Robin Hobb, sorry, <laughs> Robin Hood movie with Russell Crowe in it. And they've, just, they've, there's a lot of Robin Hood movies and, and some of them are, okay. They're all being pretty bad except for the Disney one with the Fox that I will the stand for. <laughs> yes. Remains the top one. <laughs> they just kind of take this, idea of, oh, yes, women in dresses and men in suits of armor, and this is what happens. But they don't want to actually write misogyny as an active thing that their male characters engage in, because that would be bad. And they know enough to know that that would be bad. But they don't want to interrogate the setting enough to give women a more active role in the story. So they still write what is functionally a sexist society, but then just magically give all of the the relevant male characters like this sort of very benign, weird, like, oh, I suppose you are the lone women warrior I have ever encountered. Yes, that's fine. And just sort of go with it. And it's like, you haven't really thought this through, have you? You want the sexist society because you don't want to have to do too much world building. And let's be honest, some of you probably don't want to have to write female characters who aren't really just passive love interests, but you don't want your men to look like dicks. So <laughs> you've just said magically for reasons, here are some good men in a setting that doesn't really create them. And we don't know how they've got these supposedly enlightened views about the female characters that they create, but that's just how it's going to work. The kinder, gentler <laughs> patriarchy as it were. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like noble exceptions. Just like, yes, yes, everything else is terrible. I know I made it, and it's terrible because I made it terrible. Um, but let's not let's not go into that. Let's just have this couple of good guys who deserve to get the girl in this setting. They, they've drunk the <laughs> respect women juice that makes them immune to the, <laughs> yes. the sexism yes. that is in the air in yes, this they world. Went, that just... They went to the magical fountain of, of respecting women juice, <laughs> and that was their holy grail quest. You, you know, I, I, would, I would buy that. As a world building tool <laughs> over some of the things that I have seen, I would accept the magical fountain of respecting women Jews. But it's always, yeah, that that's just a lingering nitpick of mine. It's like, okay, if you're going to give me a sexist society and you're going to give me a dude in that society who's not shit, it's like, that can exist. That's a fully plausible thing. That happens every day in the real world where someone grows up in a patriarchal shitty society and turns out not to be a shitty person. But there's usually some sort of reason why, some sort of personal example in their life of here is the point where I believed something that was terrible and here is the incident or the thing that made me start thinking about it differently or here is the incongruous in my wider culture example that I was surrounded with or maybe I'm just a particularly introspective person. But there's usually something that catalyzes it as opposed to just Oh, of course he he's he's a good guy. He's the hero. In that same level, I, I've seen a lot of stuff where there seems to be this sort of like surface level, oh, there's no sexism, everything's fine, but without changing the underlying infrastructure of the society that yep. still that still holds all those things within it, and including like how marriages are structured and what societal expectations are between men and women, and leaving that intact but acting like but that's just that's just normal and i'm not going to further interrogate that yes yeah, so we've, we've taken the sexist sofa and reupholstered it with like <laughs> more accepting upholstery but but really it's the same the same bones under there so that just gave me an image of like a cursed living sofa that was actually <laughs> made of bones <laughs> <laughs> i like it <laughs> Some sort of like creepy D and D mimic, yeah. You know, where you've yeah. got like the chaise lounge and then the teeth open, like, <laughs> or like like when you like go to sit down and like and sit and they're like, oh, you know, that chair is just not safe. Like, no, but really, that one's not. <laughs> <laughs> there are actually unsafe chairs of this nature in Fina by Nino Cipri, which is a very very good. Uh, basically, like, what if IKEA, but the sameness of the stores created like a, a wormhole through alternate dimensions of other IKEAs. 
some of which contained carnivorous furniture. Uh, and also you are a queer employee working for that minimum wage me. and this sucks. And you get sent into the wormhole to try and find lost customers. Right. Um, <laughs> Sometimes the wormhole just that. opens. Yeah. And it, you just turn to this page in the handbook and do what you can. Exactly. No, that is exactly it. That is exactly how the story goes. And it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know what? You, but you'd still yeah. rather do that than go search the warehouse for that piece of flat pack that got misplaced. Or deal with the customer insisting that, no, no, just go and check in the back. You must have one. Right. There's one more <laughs> Troplin burger left. So what I think is really interesting about sort of deciding what normal means, who gets to decide what normal means and all of that, is where our interpersonal dynamics, who we love, what our families look like, who our friends are, all those things, overlap with power dynamics in a society. Like where they overlap with class, where they overlap with law, where they overlap with money and its transfer. It's something I think about with the Roman world and the fact that it was accepting, quote unquote, of male-male homosexual relationships in a certain context. And, and you will sometimes see people try to claim that it's like, oh, they were totally cool with it all the time. It's like, not really. They were actually only cool with it in pretty icky ways because in their cultural paradigm, being the penetrating person was the thing that mattered. And so the way they conceived it, women always being penetrated uh, because they didn't know or weren't willing to talk about pegging, I guess, um, <laughs> were always inferior. But if you were between two people who had penetrating equipment, then somebody was more important than the other. And so you were really only allowed to have that kind of relationship with somebody of an inferior social status, which very often meant an enslaved person, which is getting into all kinds of gross things about like how they justified these relationships and what made it okay within the cultural paradigm. And, and it's just, it's, it's a really interesting intersection of power and sex and relationships. And meanwhile, we know almost nothing about lesbians in that period because uh, the women didn't write a lot of things down. And if they did, they didn't survive. And the men didn't know if they were lesbians, so they didn't write about them. It's like, I don't know, they could be. With the notable exception of Sappho. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's hundreds of years or that's hundreds of years. Or, I mean, I'm talking about um, in, in Romans, it's a little different. For oh, the yeah, Greeks, yeah. Sorry. Yep, yep, yep. Even she, people will bend themselves into knots to try to explain how she wasn't really. <laughs> well, the, yeah. thing, the thing that gets me about, the thing that gets me about Sappho is that she reportedly had a husband, but the name translates to like man Alcocks of Guy Island or something like that. Like it's, it's literally a joke. Like, oh yes, I am married to a man and his name is man. <laughs> it's, it's like literally Dick from the Isle of Man. Yes. yes. It's, yeah. it's, I forget what the Dick is, but he's, he's from Andros as opposed to yes. her being from Lesbos, yeah. um, which did not mean anything at the time. She is why we, we use Lesbos and, and that, but yeah, it's just a hysterical thing. Like if that was true, it's incredible <laughs> and amazing. And I love it, but probably somebody just made that up. Yes. But it's the whole thing about like Roman attitudes towards homosexuality and, you know, you were a man if you were the one pitching, not if you were the one catching, but it does throw into, into relief the apparently quite fierce debates that Plato and other members of the Philosophic Academy sort of uh, had as to who was the uh, the lover as opposed to the beloved between uh, Achilles and Patroclus, because liter and we literally have sort of like records of this of the arguments of basically arguing about who topped because it was it was clear that that one of them must have um, and so they had these and sort it of, mattered and it mattered it was so these had these yep. fierce impassioned arguments about okay no who was who was the one on top? And it's like, no, 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 Achilles was prettier. So he was clearly, he was the, clearly the one not topping. And it's like, no, no, but Patroclus was younger. So he was therefore, and it's just like, AO3 just reinvents itself over it's and like, over again. Did, did <laughs> you, just, you just described the earliest iteration of fanfic, like recorded fanfic? <laughs> I don't know if it's the earliest, but it certainly yeah. was. I mean, the Greeks just rewrote each other. And half the time it was to to make things gayer. There were a lot of the early writers that were like, I think Homer actually, I may be misremembering this. I think Homer is actually very clear that no, they were not, they were not lovers. And then later writers were like, no, they totally were though. <laughs> <laughs> Homer was wrong. They totally were. And I find that fantastic. The canon is wrong. I need to make it gay. <laughs> yeah. yeah pretty much, pretty much. Universal human impulses. Absolutely. <laughs> 
But I mean, I think on a broader scale, though, Cass, you're totally right that anytime you start talking relationships, the element of power comes into it. Like, because anytime we have power structures and then we have relationships with each other, like, how do those play into each other? How does entering into a relationship with someone potentially, you know, increase your cachet? Or what kind of social capital are you spending or, or gaining in order to, you know, be in a relationship? And then you throw, like, you know, obviously platonic relationships can be in this way too, but sexual relationships also, there's power at play anytime that you have people getting together. If you have certain families that are in power, what does it mean to be within that family? What does it mean to join that family? Are you able to join a family officially in a way that's different from marriage and then does marriage have to be defined in some sort of heteronormative way like these are these are the things i love to to dig into and 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 figure out different ways of how things are going especially if i mean because so much of you know what is the heteronormative form of marriage is rooted in like locking in paternity for you know who who is the proper father of these of these children so we know who gets to inherit the title but if like you create a society that doesn't care about that then you can open up all sorts of of options but also if you open up all sorts of options but the society still cares about that i remember i remember reading something in in draft a long time ago where the world was clearly queer norm though i don't think at the time the author necessarily had the language for that, but at the same time made the paternity of a certain character like, and the fact that the that the wife, that the mother of this character was clearly cheating on her husband like a thing. I'm like, that shouldn't be a thing if all these other parts of that you've set up about the culture not caring about that sort of thing would would make a difference of. So that was that was a thing I remember noting in particular in that particular story. And I think so many things are just so ingrained in us as part of just, you know, growing up in Western culture that it is hard to break those presumptions, even when we're actively trying to. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that always gets me is what is used as swear language in a culture, because predominantly in the West, a term that we use often as an insult is or just as like a casual not even necessarily as an insult, but it's just a casual way of being derogatory, which I suppose is the same an insult, whatever, uh, is the word bastard. But it comes from a very specific, like bitch and bastard come from very specific cultural traditions about, um, so even now, even though we now live in a world which, mm, or at least, you know, certain parts of it, a lot of the time don't really care if your parents were married. So the idea of like a bas- of being a bastard and having some kind of social stigma around that don't it doesn't have the same cultural weight that it used to do, but we still use that as an insult. And yet you will, and so we naturally will often write stories where the characters will use bastard as an insult, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the setting that's being created. It's just, we reach for that insult automatically. Um, And so one thing, when I was writing um, An Accident of Stars, one of the cultures in it is a matriarchy. And so I was trying deliberately to think up swear words that fit the concept of a matriarchy, because obviously they're not going to use bitch as a derogatory when you come from a matriarchal context, because what would be the point of that? So, And they're not going to use bastard as an insult because they don't have the same concept of, of sort of marriage and, and paternity and, and the importance of that. So you have to come up with swear words that mean something else in that context. Uh, and make them, but also make them something that the reader can understand as an insult without having to explain that it's an insult. I, I had to do that same work with velocity of keeping myself from using the word bastard because I'm like, it would not make the slightest bit of sense within this culture. <laughs> and I mean, and same thing with just using the word fuck in any sort of derogatory sense because it's a culture that is so sexually open, like that just isn't a thing they would do they wouldn't they i mean they'll use it as a verb because that's what they because that's what they're going to do but they're not going to use it in any sort of like insulty way because it doesn't make the slightest bit of sense within their culture i think this brings up a really interesting structural question and one that can be so much fun for how you build your characters and the dynamics between them which is what does marriage mean in a particular culture is it a device for the procreation of children? 
is it financial? Is it romantic? Is it political? Is it all of these things? Is it some of them and not others? There are so many axes on which you can sort of design this, what is often a, a fundamental, not always, but often a fundamental relationship for people, and the thing on which, in a lot of ways, societies and generations are built, that idea of the family goes on, things like that. You know, we see that all the time. Even the question of how many people are in a marriage is something that I think is starting to get interrogated more in, in fantasy fiction, but is another presumption that we do often still have, the idea that it's two people of whatever genders, but that they are, a marriage is something that links two people sexually, romantically, financially, I think is sort of still the default assumption. And it's like, well, what if it isn't all of those things? What if you can be married to different people and different levels of involvement with them? Can some marriages be purely financial? Can some marriages be purely procreative and, and nothing else? And can you have more of them at the same time? I It's something I'm I'm playing with in, in one of my works in progress, and I, I can't quite land on something that that feels completely right for the, the other parts of the society that I've built, but I'm having a lot of fun playing with it and deciding what that then means for the different kinds of romance that I want to have between my characters. And I think of that question of like, it, it's certainly a presumption that marriage even is the foundational or fundamental relationship that people have with each other, that it doesn't have to be that way. You could have sibling relationships be the foundational societal relationship, or you could have business partnerships be the foundational societal relationship. Um, so like once you kind of like start poking it, it's like, oh, I can do all kinds of different things with this. I could do, you know, people and, and having more than one, like you were saying, Cass, having more than one foundational relationship, we have the presumption that in many ways a marriage is supposed to serve sets up in many ways for the expectation of your spouse is your every person in our culture, which can sometimes be somewhat unhealthy in some ways, even. It's but a lot of pressure to put on each it other. It really is. But, but it's, it's, it makes sense within the context of what our society has built marriage into being. And you don't have to replicate that in a second world. But of course, the challenge is also not only building that in a consistent way within the world, but also teaching your readers to understand and accept that. There was a bit of a scandal a few months ago. I forget what the book was off the top of my head, but it was like the third or the fourth in the series. And earlier in the series, the writer had already established the idea that this, like that a, a triad marriage was, was a thing within the society. And then once like it reached the point where in the fourth book, where this actual threesome is, you know, truly established it's like the one true threesome of of the story some people lost their damn minds that it wasn't like this the true pairing this wasn't is... a pairing but there was a third person now and this this ruins everything like there was a whole lot of like people just going completely this is a this is a jenny almond trap book wasn't that it, was I it think. jenny almond trap <laughs> yeah and I didn't know about the triad being a thing in the relationship, but I the thing that was getting to me, because I I haven't read these books, but it was two sides of my Twitter timeline, cause, and one of them was saying, this has come out of nowhere. Why? How has she suddenly got these two guys? How is And the other one's going, dude, this has been foreshadowed since the first book. You just haven't been picking up what she's been putting down. What? And it just, it fascinates me. Because we do talk about this a lot, but it's it can be kind of taboo for authors to talk about it. Is sort of reading comprehension, because yeah, you you know you get reviews. Some reviews are good, some reviews are bad, whatever. But sometimes reading comprehension is an issue, <laughs> and I think it's fascinating <laughs> if you've got this particular example where a huge portion of the fan base was like, yeah, we've we've seen this being foreshadowed since since book one, and all of these other people going, but it came out of nowhere, and it's like. Okay, clearly, if a bunch of people were seeing it as foreshadowed, then the information was there. It was just for whatever reason, and the reason here is kind of like heteronormativity and not being aware of polyamory and just all of those cues, a bunch of you just kind of put out of mind. You didn't interpret them, but that doesn't mean they weren't there to be interpreted. Like, yeah. <laughs> and there, there are two different... On the one hand, yes, if, 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 if like a triad or polyamory or whatever isn't your thing you want to read out in fiction, I can understand feeling upset that you encountered it in a situation where you weren't expecting it to. But on the other hand, at a certain point, like 
it's not even a question of death of the author. It's a question of what physically is in text and how are you choosing to read this? Like, this is something I think is, is really fascinating, particularly when it comes to creating sort of uh, queer norm cultures or just anything that isn't directly obviously based on a real world historical example that people that readers might be familiar with is that you're expecting readers to take the information that you're giving them and interpret it in a certain way. And there will still be people who, even though this is a fantasy setting, go, well, this isn't exactly like this culture that I vaguely recognize. Therefore, you've done it wrong. And it's like, it is made up. (laughs) (laughs) It is. This is fictional. We are we are taking something that, w- that was kind of real or like a, a nebulous notion of something real and we are reinterpreting it in a fictional context. But at the same time, if you're taking like a living culture that exists or like a living history of a culture that is not yours and interpreting it and people go, well, yes, you can say this is meant to be fictional, but if you are incorporating, for instance, real world stereotypes into your writing, then saying, oh, but it's not real. It's not quite the get out of jail free card that you think it is. It's but it's always a question of what what is being put there and what is being taken from that narrative. It's never just one. It's never just a question of here is one thing that is being put in. It's never just a question of the author's delivery or a question of the reader's interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's a question of both. I, was say, I mean, reading is a creative act. Like no reader comes to something without their own interpretations and biases and the lenses that they're reading everything through. So it's like they are creating with your writing while they are reading and in fact making something that you did not create. And that lens can even just be in the genre expectations. If, like if, if they're reading a romantic fantasy novel with the lens of what like say the romance tropes are supposed to be it's supposed to end with the right couple together and a happily ever after and if that's not what the author is going for because the author is not writing a romance then they'll be like but 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 the rules of romance this is supposed to end this way it's like sorry but you but you did it wrong (laughs) you did it wrong like no you you came at it wrong who told you we were playing by those (laughs) rules like yeah well, there's so much space that exists between author and reader, and, and it is, I think it's a really hard thing to balance and hard to guess. We talk about the on-ramp all the time, right? Like, how steep is your on-ramp? How much hand-holding do you have to do to get the reader into your world? And I have read some books that were exploring really interesting concepts of gender and sexuality and non-monogamous relationships and, and things like that, that I bounced off of because the way the author was explaining all those things was so handholdy to me. And I'm like, I don't need the 101 on, on what these terms mean. I don't need the 101, but some readers do. And so it's like, where do you find that balance of like when you are introducing the reader to what marriage means, what a sexual relationship means in your world, what the idea of gender and what gender roles may or may not mean in your world. You do too much, you might turn off exactly some of the reader's who would be most favorable to it because it sort of seems like you're belaboring points that's like, I'm already familiar with this. I, I know what these terms mean. I feel like I'm being lectured at and I don't look for that in fiction. And it's, it's something I'm also currently struggling with as I write. I'm writing it and going like, is this going to annoy me when I read it? Is this going to be <laughs> like explaining my terms so much that I'm going to annoy myself when I, I read that, it back? And yeah, I think the thing is that there's no one reader. Like there's, what will what will irritate somebody will please somebody else, as you've just said. So there's no point trying to please everybody because it's it's literally impossible. I mean, in most things, but particularly in creative endeavors, you can't just say, yes, I will write things the one true, perfect, correct way. And then everybody <laughs> will like my book because that's, oh, if only. Alas, that is not how it works. Someday. <laughs> no. But then like figure, just figuring out where to aim, like. I just think that's a negotiation that each writer has to do on their own. Like, where on the scale do I personally want to aim myself? And it's an ongoing negotiation for me. One of the things that I think gets can get overlooked sometimes, particularly, there is always room for stories that are doing, for instance, queerness 101 or feminism 101 in terms of the world building or in, in terms of how an issue is approached. Because people, as you say, are always going to be onboarding. There are always going to be readers who are new to those issues or who, even if they aren't new to them, like to go back and just say, yes, I remember when this was a new concept to me or when I was just getting into this kind of thing. But I think sometimes 
we get people who are like, yes, I'm into the 401. I'm into the, the PhD track of this particular trope or idea <laughs> or world building thing. And I need it to be more and more and more complex so that I can get something new out of it each time. And then they look back at something simple and fault it for its simplicity. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's doing something valuable. You couldn't have got to where you are now if at some point you hadn't been reading the 101 thing. You might have graduated from it in terms of Comp like personal comprehension and taste, um, where graduate in here doesn't mean necessarily that what is more complex is better. It just means that you personally have moved on from that being your personal baseline. But it's you still have a need for those stories. There's no point critiquing everything and saying, ah, oh, yes, but this isn't sufficiently complex unless, and my one exception for this is if you have raised an issue of plot or character or world building in the story that is actively suffering for lack of more complex, um, more complex analysis or more complex uh, acknowledgement of these issues, then I'm going to look at it and go, okay, this particular element is, is, is suffering from a more simplistic approach. But the simplistic approach itself isn't necessarily bad if the things that you were addressing in that context work within that framework, if that makes sense. So one thing that I wanted to take time to pivot to for sure is that, um, you know, in creating a second world, you have the opportunity to, you know, play with different cultures and different cultures having different norms and different, you know, angles and opinions and views and thoughts. I think you did this really beautifully in Strange and Stubborn Endurance because the different cultures have different views on marriage and on sexuality and like what what was what was your decision making and writing process and kind of coming to how you wanted to to develop those uh, well thank you but so the thing with the strange and stubborn endurance is uh just for context is it's a it's a arranged marriage fantasy where one of the protagonists Felison, comes from a homophobic sexist sort of based on slightly sort of Western Europe kind of country called Ralia. A marriage is proposed between him and a lady from the neighboring country of Tithina, which is much more liberal um, and much more queer normative. He is outed under deeply unpleasant circumstances, but the envoy from Tithina is like, well, okay, it's fine. If you like men, uh, you can just marry the lady's brother. And that's Kaithari, who's the, the other protagonist. And that's the inciting incident, shall we say, for what then goes on to, to happen in the rest of the book. But the idea of having this one very queer normative culture and one very, uh, let's say, re repressive one. The reason I sort of set that up as a, as a contrast is because I really, I really love reading fantasy books and uh, sci-fi fantasy books where you've got just a queer norm setting and everything is unquestioned. And I also love reading like historical fantasy or fantasy where you have characters who are expressing their queerness and sort of thriving despite living in an oppressive regime. But in the real world, we often have a mix of both these things because we still, you know, we live in a much more accepting cultural context than we did, say, 50 or even 20 years ago. But the terrible forces of, of homophobia and bigotry and oppression still very much exist, not just not just in the world at in, in the world at large, you can't just say, oh, it's only that country over there that does that. No, it's every country that still does this. And so you have that contact you have that constant contrast if you're a queer person in the modern world of on the one hand, you will have, you know, your found families, you will have your communities where you can thrive and you can be yourself and you can be out. And you will also be aware that there are places that potentially are not safe for you and they might be the place that you've come from, or it might just be somewhere that you were. But you have that constant tension of knowing that that it's not one thing or the other. And I wanted to see that reflected in a fantasy context of somebody coming, like a, a sort of parallel um, thing of coming from the place uh, where, you know, that is homophobic, where things are repressed, where you, you can't be yourself and coming to the place where suddenly you can be open and then you have to navigate that transition emotionally from, okay, shit, what other emotional baggage, what other weird cultural stuff have I picked up as a result of living in this place where I haven't been able to be myself? And how has that been influencing my notions of romance and autonomy and what I think marriage is? So one of the things Velison is constantly uh, struggling with when he comes to, to Tithana, and he, Tithana and he marries Kithari is that his entire notion of uh, marriage is heteronormative. And it's based around this idea that a wife comes 
to the husband's house and he she manages the household and she manages the children. And he's like, well, okay, in my conception of things, I have come to you the way a bride would come, but I don't know how to be a bride. I'm not raised, you know, I was not raised with this. So I don't know what I'm meant to do as your husband occupationally because we don't have any children and we can't get them in what I would think of as the normal fashion. Um, and he then learns, yes, actually you can, you can adopt or you can have a surrogate, you can get children as a queer couple in this in this context. And he's like, okay, that, that had never occurred to him, but he doesn't, it's, it's that constant sort of process of, I don't even know how to be in a relationship openly with somebody because I've never had the opportunity to be openly with someone before. And so, yeah, that's, that's the sort of constant emotional push and pull of, of the book is trying to negotiate that space for yourself when you've had to come from one state to the other. I say I really love the way of putting it of what do what does that mean for me occupationally <laughs> as as a spouse because you can also construe that in so many other ways like what does this relationship mean for me occupationally as in how does it occupy my time what mm. in in whatever kind of relationship like what does that mean for the things I do what are my responsibilities what are my privileges what are my boundaries that is such a great fundamental question to consider when building sort of any kind of of relationship between characters that's great yeah, and it's because, particularly in the context of the nobility, he's used to the idea of you know if a marriage is a, a marriage is fundamentally foremost a thing of alliance and uh, creating children, but necessarily you are landholders, you are aristocrats, you have duties, and those duties are split between husband and wife. So, you know, a wife is a sort of castellan. You know, she will come into the estate, she will manage certain domestic affairs of the estate, she will manage the children, she will do this. But he's come to this place where his husband's living in what is functionally sort of like a small citadel, which already has its own staff. It's not something for him to run. So it's like, well, okay, I can't, I can't be a wife to you in this sense. I can't manage this, uh, this territory because there is nothing for me to manage. Uh, and we don't have any children, so I can't look after them. Uh, so what am I meant to do here? How am I meant to help you? And that's his sort of foremost conception of what it means. And meanwhile, Kafari is just sort of like, I, I don't know what to tell you here. This is not, <laughs> this is, that's not what this is. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, and I love it too, because, you know, there's obviously there's a layer of, of the marriage and the relationship, but like anytime that you enter a new culture, you have these moments of like, oh, I didn't know that was an option. Like, mm-hmm. what am I supposed to do? Well, you can do any of it. I can, I can do this stuff. It's an option. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, oh, and now I have to sit on that and think on it a little bit because I didn't know it was an option. And now I have no idea who I want to be or what I want to do or fundamentally, like Cassie was saying, fundamentally how you spend your time every day ends up being such a fundamental part of who you are and how you conceive of yourself. I'm just also thinking of the bit in The Magicians where Elliot has to marry Fenn because he's, you know, for deals that he made. So then he's sort of stuck feeling miserable that he's married to Fenn because Elliot is like a Kinsey five. And while having sex with women is, <laughs> is fine. It's not really what he's really into. <laughs> and, and then he's just like, but I'm stuck with this. And then somebody's like, no, you can have your, your man marriage also. And he's like, what? That, that you get two marriages. That's an option. Why did nobody tell me this was an option before? <laughs> Because then, then we wouldn't have gotten to enjoy your angst. It's that same situation of of coming in with a preconception and then nobody explaining to you that preconceptions are wrong because they have their own preconceptions and they just presume you know what they know about their culture, but you don't because you were raised in a completely different thing. And that, that can be an interesting thing to play with also when those, when those sets of preconceptions clash. Nobody tells anybody anything because they just... Cause yeah. Who ne- who needs to explain? Why wouldn't that? you know that? Why wouldn't you know so you also get a man marriage? Everyone knows that. So it's like I'm writing at the moment. I'm writing the sequel to A Strange and Stubborn Endurance, which I'm really excited about. And a lot of it is the sort of emotional what happens next. So you're married now. Some things have happened. What are the, what is the fallout? How do we now actually make a marriage work in this context? And a great deal of it is just sort of emotional negotiations around like personal and cultural expectations and how do we communicate? Because there's two very different, two very different sets of expectations around what communication looks like. And in the case of Ellison, 
he's he's always had to have relationships in private before. So anytime you have an argument with somebody that you're seeing privately and who you can't be connected with, if you have a spat, you just kind of go and hide for a couple of weeks. You know, you just kind of, you, you don't break it off, but you just kind of go away until you've cooled down a bit. And then you come back and you sort of effectively pretend that it didn't happen. But that's not in a, in a functional marriage, that's not what you do when you have an argument. You have to try and, or you have a disagreement or you have a tension, you have to kind of work it out. And so he's in the situation where it's like, he has never been able to be the person initiating conversations or sort of like pursuing intimacy because there are all of these rules around his own safety and self-preservation that he's had to adhere to before. And so he's sort of sitting here going, well, I don't, I don't know how to do this. Like I'm trying, but I don't know how to do this. Uh, and meanwhile, Kefari is sort of like, I, I don't know what you want from me here because I, my expectations for communication are based on my own context. And I know that's not your context, but I also don't quite know what to do to meet you in the middle because your context isn't great, frankly. <laughs> and we, we agree that your context is not great. Um, so what do we how do we negotiate this when you've got all of these other political forces bearing down on the relationship and saying, Hey, um, this is, this is not necessarily ideal for us. Um, anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. And one of the things I love too, is that you play with that trope of, you know, marriage is not always even in a secondary world about who you fall in love with and like, there's that element of political or otherwise power dynamic going into it that it's an arranged marriage it's it's set up mm. because other people believe it would be beneficial to them to have their children married to each other to cement a, a alliance in a kind of fraught you know political environment i remember we had on the discord there was a discussion about that at the idea of like a culture where arranged marriages are made while they're still pregnant and so it's like you don't even know what these two children are going to be at all yet, but too bad they're getting married regardless of <laughs> regardless of any other factor involved. You get what you, you get, get. What you get, and no, you two are getting married, and that's <laughs> that's just something you're just going to have to live with. I think it's it's interesting as well. So I enjoy romantic fantasy, obviously. There's a particular thing though that that bugs me at times, and it's when you have a context like a narrative context where clearly marriages of alliance or arranged marriages are the cultural norm where marriage means a certain thing. And that's clearly been borrowed from, you know, often again, sort of a Western European cultural tradition. But then you'll have sort of the protagonist being like, but no, I want to marry for love, but not in a way where they're cognizant of the dissonance between this and the cultural expectation. Because that's understandable. That's understandable. Sort of sitting there looking around at your society and looking at probably a number of unhappy marriages as like the example that has been laid out for you and going, actually, no, I don't want that. That, that kind of sucks. And you, you can still be a romantic in that context, but that's, that cultural upbringing still informs the way that you're looking at it saying the system is actually, is bad actually. And I don't want that for myself. Um, or I've looked, I've seen an example within this where an arranged marriage turned out to be a love match. And that's what I want for myself as opposed to just, being somehow like sh like shocked Pikachu meme that you'd be expected to marry someone that you didn't choose. Yes. And it's like, where where have you been for the past 17 to 25 years of your own life? How did, you, how did you miss that how this many, was a thing? How many weddings have you been to? Weren't they all? Yeah. Didn't you? But I think it's interesting yeah. too, because often that like, it's the choice of like, well, you can go with the arranged marriage or you can reject it all and marry for love. And it's like, you know, I imagine that in many contexts both historical and imagined you can have other ways of negotiating this you know like maybe you you know what the marriage that's societally what we do but you have other relationships too or you are developing other you know rapports or you have other ways of of negotiating not being completely happy with the system like and i find those stories really interesting like these in-between places of between like complete rejection of crappy system and complete acceptance of crappy system. Like most people historically and today are playing with kind of these negotiations of like, well, how do I find a place and a niche and a way of living that I am happy with that balances my wants and my needs with what expectations and norms are kind of 
entrenched around me. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. I think it's a relevant point to note that when you write down as like a set of rules for a given historical, you know, society or culture or whatever, like this is how marriage happened. It's like, no, no, it didn't happen like that every single time. That's the important, like any, any rule, any human rule will always have humans making exceptions to the rule, even if they think they are the only exceptions. That, that's kind of what we do as a species. We make rules and then we break them. Um, and, and, and sometimes the rules are more like more imagined than guidelines. actually <laughs> in practical purpose. Like I think they went back and did, they compared church records of when people got married and when their first kid got baptized in like colonial New England, like 17th century. Mm. And they discovered that like, <laughs> guess what? Typically the, the, the first, the pregnancy predated the marriage. And like, obviously, are we surprised by this? But also because the, um, they kind of worked out that potentially one of the reasons for this is that the, the kids wanted to get married. Mom and dad didn't want to slice off part of the farm to give it to them yet. So the rule is you have to wait for mom and dad's permission to get married. Right. And kids are like, uh, I think we can figure out a way to force mom and dad's hand <laughs> on giving us permission to get married. <laughs> We're not going to be careful about this at all. But it's, I mean, it's that. And it's, you can also say, okay, particularly in eras where you didn't have as much medical knowledge as we did now, and you want a biological child to carry on your line. If you're sort of, if you're waiting to get married until you know somebody is pregnant, it's a kind of guarantee. Like, yes, this person can get pregnant, actually. But then at the same time, you have huge infant mortality rates and huge rates of miscarriage for a large number, you know, most of human history, really, it was always very dangerous. So this, this context of total chastity being sort of like retroactively imposed by a lot of uh, bad takes on what medieval Europe was like, it's like, mm, <laughs> it's, it doesn't, it doesn't really fit. You know, it's, it's, you get these very sort of modern, sorry, I'm sort of jumping around contexts here a bit, but I'm, I'm irritated a lot of the time at the moment with, uh, as I suspect we all are, with like anti-abortion lobbying in the US and elsewhere, and this sort of really um, retconned notion of, oh, back in the day, you know, everybody got married at 14 because that's when a girl was most fertile and nobody ever had abortions. And, you know, everyone understood that the sanctity of life began at conception. And it's like, no, okay, firstly, no. <laughs> They didn't get married at that age because you were more likely to die in childbirth if you were a, you know, particularly a very young teenager. The only time marriages really got arranged at that age was between marriages of alliance between the nobility. And even then they wouldn't, the actual marriage wouldn't happen until the girl was much older. You wanted her to... Arrange being the key word there. <laughs> arrange being, yes, you know... Yes, arranged, <laughs> the operative word there. It's like, no, you didn't do that. And for most of most of history... Even in a Christian context, you didn't consider a pregnancy to, you know, involve a baby, a living thing, until the, what was called the quickening, until you could actually feel the child kick. Anything prior to then, if, if the child, you know, if you thought the pregnancy was dangerous, if it was a miscarriage, if there was an abortion, and those did happen, it was, it was actually quite commonplace because so many resources went into raising a child and the risk to the mother was so high that if you already had, you know, three or four children and then another pregnancy comes along at a bad time – Prior to the quickening, if you if you go and get an abortion, that was considered fine and normal, and women would just talk about doing that at various points in history. They might not talk about it with the men, but they certainly talked about it, and we have records <laughs> of them talking about it. But then you get this sort of weird, very fake, ah, but obviously they couldn't have been like that in the past. We must use the past to justify what we do now. And it's like, I am begging you to read even one book <laughs> that... <laughs> It's yep. just... Well, and it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, the the priests came up with a lot of rules about chastity because people were behaving contrary to those rules. Like, there are way too many fertility festivals for these people not to have been interested in sex. Like, yeah. they weren't sex-averse, they were having lots of it. And in some periods and times, it was like, you know... The priest only comes around once every two years. We'll get the marriage formally sanctioned then, but until then, we're living as a married couple and, and doing what we do. And, and those divisions of, like, what counts as, as a marriage. Is it when you combine households? Is it when mom and dad carve off a piece of the farm? Is it when the priest blesses it? 
it's all so murky. And yeah, the overlap with like when is a you know when is a pregnancy something that we consider sacred and not, or not is is a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> you know, I, th- I feel like it's too. It's you've got you know these it's obviously are all in some ways complex, complicated questions, both like emotionally and societally and familially. And so people have been negotiating their own way through them since time immemorial, right? I mean, it's a bad reading of history to look at what is there a rule for, and that must have been that's what people didn't do. No, people were doing it, and someone didn't like it, and so it necessitated a rule. It's kind of like in my house when my chaos child does something, and then I'm like, okay, well, new rule, we don't do this. We didn't need the rule until I caught you doing it. Sorry, this is this is a thing that happens. Sorry, I I this is a total total sidebar, but I have unaccountably found myself caring about a sport, which is ice hockey, um, and I've been following it for a few years now. But if you look at the history of it, there are a couple of very specific rules in the NHL that didn't exist until some guy decided to be a particular kind of dick, and they were like, okay, no new rule, you can't do that. And one of them is like. There was a specific rule about standing in front of the goaltender, basically just going, yeah, and distracting them and waving their heads. Because there was one guy who kept doing it. <laughs> and it was like, okay, we didn't think we needed a rule for this, but apparently we need a rule for this. Don't fucking obstruct the goalie by by acting like a child at a window when you see a weird dog on the other side. Like it's <laughs> So many rules and regulations just have their have their origins of well there's no rule that says I can't well now there's gonna be (laughs) (laughs) this is like the the Airbud movies there's no rule that says a dog can't play basketball (laughs) but also to to go like how many how many of those societal norms have their birth in some sort of like there's no rule and then somebody who just has stick up their ass about whatever says well I'm gonna make a rule because if I'm not having this kind of fun then nobody is like this might be apocryphal I might have gotten my information bad. From what I understand, that like why Catholic priests don't can't marry is because sometime in like the second century, one of the early priests like had just an especially bad breakup, and he was just mad, (laughs) just like none of us should get married ever because it's just because it just sucks. (laughs) And I mean, honestly, it's. it's that track. That, that's something that's like, yeah. <laughs> but it's also, that's one of those other assumptions that Catholic priests don't marry that has not historically always no, been true. The Pope used and to have not, children. It used, that was yeah, like a well, whole papal dynasty. But there were even periods where like, and it didn't change everywhere at the same time. Um, this was one of the big things when like the, the church from the continent and the church on the British Isles were, were finally sort of merging after a few back and forths with, oh, we got taken over by the Swedes again, so we sort of lapsed back into paganism, and but wait, no, no, we're back. But wait, you say we can't have wives and children? Wait, hmm. Uh, hmm what, do you, uh, what do you mean we can't do that? Do you think they'll notice? Rome's really far away. Rome's really far. Do they, will, they, will they really know? Like, this ongoing negotiation of presumption, I think, is another fun thing to explore. The things that we think are true weren't always and and weren't always true for everyone even living within a certain culture which i find funny i think the other thing that sometimes rules get created when somebody is too good at whatever it is that they're doing (laughs) that somebody else doesn't like like yeah like oh there was no rule saying that guy couldn't do that thing and now he has a lot of cash from doing that thing and we're mad he has a lot of cash so we're going to change the rule well sumptuary laws for instance to take Mm. an example from american history is that you know they they didn't it was I think and forgive me because my knowledge of this is is scatty, but sort of in the in the sort of in the South when you had a lot of freed slaves and the descendants of freed slaves and you had uh, Creole communities and the women would make these beautiful headdresses and head wraps uh, and it was showing up basically you had like you had the white communities getting really angry about oh these black women and these brown women are dressing so beautifully uh, so suddenly they introduced sumptuary laws controlling who can wear what and saying, no, you can't wrap your hair like this. And it's still fucking happening. Like another version of a sumptuary law with, oh, you know, you can't have like box braids or you can't have like an Afro or you can't have natural black hairstyles. And it's like, have we, have we at all moved on from sumptuary laws really having these different regulations about, oh, if you're going to this, it sounds absurd to say it out loud, but it's true. It's just like, there's a different qualification that you need to be able to do 
certain types of black hairdressing that yes so it, i think the, in hairdressing in general like the licensing is byzantine completely yeah. but you have to have a certain number of hours with each particular kind of hairstyle and in order to style black hair you have to have been licensed by doing a certain number of hours when it's like many many people who do hair in the black community it's like that's they learn to do it and they do it and they can get cracked down on for like not having the proper licensing for doing it yeah and it's it's like time is a flat fucking circle in certain <laughs> respects but it's and again there was i mean there was an example I, i'm gonna get the period wrong but i think the sort of the zoot suit era when was that it was the 30s 50s, 30s into 40s yeah 30s 30s to 40s there were riots because race riots because white men were getting angry that the filipino uh laborers looked really, really good in zoot suits <laughs> and were, were chatting up all of the women very successfully with how handsome and, and cool they looked. And so they had a fucking race riot about it and killed people. And that's a real bit of history. Like the, the, the theme here is white people being angry that people of color look cool. <laughs> and I think to sort of tie that back around to our central concept about relationships, you see it too in, in how cishet people want to control other people's relationships. And I have always wondered, like, why the fuck do you care what somebody else's marriage looks like? And so I think if you're building a society where somebody does care what somebody else's relationship looks like, this sort of ties back around to what we sort of started this conversation with. What's the reason? Like, what's the justification? Even if it's not a good justification, but what's the reason in their heads that somebody else's relationship style is somehow threatening to society or to the dominant power structures or, yeah, could be societally disruptive in some way. And where do you find the, the plot negotiations that then come out of that? I mean, it is interesting because any kind of relationship that we were saying, like there are going to be these like threads of not necessarily legitimate anxiety, but understandable anxiety of like, this is how you access power or this is how you create legitimate whatever, whether in your world it's, you know, business ventures or you create a legitimate family structure with legitimate heirs. There's like these, this anxiety about like having some sort of formalized access to particular parts of your society. And so like, this is, this is why people get all hepped up about what other people's relationships looks like, because does this, does this threaten the legitimacy of what I have attained? Because these are the channels that we have set up in our society to move into different areas and to do different things. So good thread tying <laughs> off. Good. Yeah. I think I think we're yeah. about at our time. <laughs> I was about to say that we're we're, we're we, I think we've gone beyond <laughs> our good. hour, but that's okay because it's not like we have to fit in a time <laughs> slot. <laughs> it's true. No, I want to make sure before we move move on to closing things up, Foss, if there's anything else that you wanted to touch on or or play with or. Or, or brag on from your book is totally fine too. So, <laughs> uh, no, I think I think I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> so we like to end our guest star episodes, Foz, by asking you to give us a parting gift. Um, we like to collect little bits of trivia that we can slot into the world that we are building together on the podcast. And so we would love if you would give us a little memento of your visit. Um, okay, so I think. So mushrooms are very cool. Fungus are very cool and unknowable entities. Uh, and I think that we should have a, a mushroom, which is, you know, it sprouts, people eat it, uh, but it's, it's all connected. The mycelia are all connected underground. So a mushroom that retains the genetic information of anybody who touches it or plucks it, such that that could be magically accessed at a later date by someone with the, no with the knowledge and desire to do so. Mushroom memory. I love That's it. So cool. You, you, you know I love my mushroom magic, so. <laughs> mushrooms are magic. They are, they're. <laughs> the shroom. Like as soon as you said, Cass lit up because she knew that I was like, oh, yeah. I'm yeah. just looking at you. Right. I was looking at your face, that's why. <laughs> we, we reciprocated each other's lighting up over because I've played with that more than once and probably will again. <laughs> Well, Foss, thank you so much for coming on and for um, sharing your thoughts with us. It was a delightful conversation. I hope you had fun. I did. Thank you very much for having me. It's been wonderful.
Hi you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. This episode marks the end of three years of our podcast, and we're thrilled you've been on this journey with us. Our next episode goes up June 20th, where we'll be talking about filling in the corners of your world beyond the horizons of your stories, and discussing our bold plans for the new season of the show. If you want to know more about your hosts and the fantastical books we write, links to all of that information is on our website at worldbuildingformasochists.podbeam.com. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked in the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. To hear about the worlds you're making and help us all build until it hurts.